The global is like understanding history as a strictly human affairs, right? Where we talk about wars and key frames and key dates and key actors. Whereas the planetary is a different picture of history where humans cannot be separable from the Earth system or the geological layer. So that's what we're contending with now. So when we talk about the end of a world, we're talking about the end of a picture of history where it's only about humans and what humans do. Hello and welcome to the Culture and Technology Podcast. My name is Severin Matusek and this is the final episode of Season 3. We started this season in virtual space, then moved into physical reality and discussed the relationship between law and our planet. That's why it's only fitting that today we're talking about the end of a world. By that I don't mean that the world is ending, but a specific view of the world is ending. And to understand why, Patricia Reed joins us. Patricia is an artist, writer, and designer based in Berlin who researches world models. What does that mean? It means that the version of the world we learned about in school, you know, the one with humans and human history at the center of everything, is probably not true, or at least not very helpful when it comes to understanding the current state of the planet and our survival in it. Maybe... Well, just maybe we need to put nature back in the center of the story in order for us to have agency and take better care of our environment. All this and more in our conversation with Patricia Reed. We're here in our little uh, culture and technology studio in Berlin, where you live. You just returned from Canada. How was vacation? Um, it was uh, interesting. It was uh, not so big of a vacation. I mean, it was uh, lovely to be there, but it was a lot of catching up with family that I hadn't seen because of COVID for many years. So uh, very, you know, moving to see a lot of family members and actually took a road trip with my mom to a part of the Canada, uh, Canada that had never been called Cape Breton, a very like incredibly beautiful island on the East Coast. So that was very nice to see, discover a new part of that very large country. <laughs> Um, so it's, it sounds like you've been in close touch with raw nature or some sort of a very naturalistic environment. Did it spark any thoughts related to your research on the planetary and uh, yeah, what you've been researching over the last few years? Um, it's interesting you ask that because I think, you know, coming from Canada, so it's like uh, coming from a sort of culture where uh, you now have a distance, right? I've been out of the country for about 20 years. Um, and so you get to see from a distance, like how it's changing and you also get a different view on the culture you were you brought up in, so to speak. And I almost felt like, you know, because you go there and you just see these vast expanses of, uh, of, of wilderness and there's a very different relationship to nature, um, compared to, let's say like a German thing where they're like, Oh, let's go camping. I'm like, for me, camping is like survival. You know what I mean? I'm like, things can kill you. Um, but I also think it really impacts the way that, um, you know, like obviously like the climate mitigation policies in Canada are drastically lacking, right? It's such a resource rich country. And, you know, when you leave your house, you go outside, you see all this like expansive wilderness. So you're like, you know, they don't, I feel like there's not this 
sense of urgency that maybe a European sort of sensibility where there's very literal wilderness in the, in the, you know, in our setting. Um, so I don't know, I, I'm, I'm kind of like, I feel that that's almost kind of, uh, tr- producing a kind of visual trick that this is not a problem. Right. Um, so I guess that's, that's kind of what I took away from that. Um, it's like they don't know how, it's almost like you can't see how fleeting that context could be in a sense. I was asking the question because I think the the title of our podcast today is The End of a World, mm-hmm. um, which is, I, I think, much more of a theoretical um, approach rather than a practical, the apocalypse is coming. That's why, that's where my question came from. But maybe before we go into that, I'm just curious to hear more about how you became who you are today? Because I feel like it's, I mean, that's a, that's a loaded question, but I, I, f- I think it's quite interesting, uh, you know, looking at, at what you've done over the last few years, um, your approach is very interdisciplinary between artistic work, uh, writing work, graphic design work. Um, so how do you approach work in a way and how do you approach what interests you and how you express yourself and what you're curious about and how you research that? Yeah, I mean, my background is in visual arts, so it came from came from that, um, but was always uh, very interested in theory and philosophy. So was doing a lot of reading, um, you know, on my own uh, primarily. Um, and I guess you know, I, there's like very practical reasons too, right? I remember having a, you know, an excellent professor in uh, in undergrad and in, in the you know art academy. She's like, well, you probably don't want to be a bartender for the rest of your life. So like figure out some useful skills you can learn to, you know, make a living. And I was like, yeah, you're probably right. And at that time, this was in Montreal. It was the boom, like the the internet boom in the late 90s. So uh, you could essentially just get a job if you learned basic coding, right? Because there was very few people with those skills. So just kind of taught myself how to code. You fudge your way into some jobs. Um, (laughs) You learn under very stressful, deliverable conditions. Um, But just sort of fell into that um, freelance sort of scenario, uh, which I guess was just like a a lucky moment in time to sort of catch that that wave. And it's something that I continue to do. Um, But the other thing that I think is quite nice about it was that... uh, it kind of gave me access to academics and researchers because you could be useful to their research projects. So a lot of them were interested in like how to develop visualizations for research. So I ended up doing a lot of like scientometric um, work when I arrived in Berlin, uh, which was basically like doing like Latourian actor network theory type of uh, visualizations, dynamic cartography. Okay, you have to explain that. <laughs> what is Latourian dynamic visualization? Okay. So, <laughs> it's like you study the, the publication history of like a field or a person or whatever, and you develop um, mapping techniques about that. So from those maps, you can like maybe see the evolution of a discipline or like, yeah, the, the various actors, what their relationships are. Um, and, and so kind of just got involved in doing that, like different ways to, to see the history of a field, for instance. And that entailed a lot of collaboration with various scientists and, uh, social studies of science people as well. Um, but curiously, um, and I think this is a nice example of like where, uh, (laughs) 
like how you can develop critical perspectives from a practical standpoint was that I realized that like in doing all these visualizations, basically I could show whatever the scientists want. I could be like, what do you want to see in this? And I could wait and adjust the, the diagrams or the mappings to like accommodate that view. Um, I also got very critical about the, you know, the kind of proliferation of network diagrams in the sense that we draw nodes or we have, we have nodes, we draw lines between them and that relationship is supposed to be kind of self-evident. But what is the quality of that relationship? Is it antagonistic? Is it exploitative? It kind of was an avenue, a practical avenue to kind of get, get into the kind of critical relationship with diagramming as such, right? Um, especially these prototypical images that dominate our, our networked culture, right? Yeah. I, f I find it a really personal, nice anecdote to kind of see how through the practice of design, you can actually arrive at a pretty substantial critical perspective on an academic field. Hmm. I find it very interesting because I assume that a lot of traditional scientists do not have the skills to visualize their thoughts in that way. So I guess you were almost like a research partner to them to ask them questions, understand what they want to say, understand their theories, and then put them into visuals that then make their theories much more accessible, maybe to a larger group of people, because visuals are just so much easier for a lot of people to grasp rather than reading a 10-page text, right? Yeah, and actually, I mean, it's funny because we're doing this in the context of a of a of an Austrian or a <laughs> Viennese uh, organization. Um, and one of the best jobs that I had when I when I came to Berlin uh, was through Vienna, and it was a now a defunct project, which I think is so tragic. But it was called the Galerie der Forschung, so the Gallery of Research. And the, the purpose of that project was modeled on contemporary art in the sense that like contemporary art is about bringing non-canonized works to a general, to a public, right? The idea of Galerie de Forschung was like, how do we do that with contemporary science? So that's what we needed, like different ways to bring these complicated <laughs> things to a broader public reach. Um, so I was kind of involved in The early stages of that, unfortunately, it got, uh, I don't know all the politics, but it's, it, it was discontinued, um, to put it diplomatically. Um, but it was incredibly exciting to be involved in that team of like exhibition design in the context of working with scientists. Um, also how to performatively bring those, uh, you know, relatively complicated things uh, into public attention because the idea behind the The project was that, you know, these are not just scientific problems, they're, they're social problems, right? Like at that time we were talking a lot about stem cells, right? Like this is a social issue. So it's not just what science can do, it's what do we want to do with it? Um, and what ought we to do with it? What ought we not to do with it? Mm -hmm. And so coming from that early example that you gave, like coming to Berlin, doing these designs, doing these visualizations, how did you then get started to write your own texts and do your own research. I mean, I started publishing because that's the kind of catch-22 that young people should know about publishing, right? It's like, no one wants to hire you to write anything unless you have a track record. Well, how do you get the track record? You know, so it's that, it's that double bind. Maybe it's less so now because there's like not a stigma against publishing online. In fact, I think it's preferable. Um, but back then, this is like early, two, you know, well, mid-2000s, I guess. Um, there was still this kind of status thing that oh, if it's online, it wasn't like prestigious enough. 
So uh, anyways, there was a kind of Canadian contingent in Berlin. And because of the rules of Canadian funding, uh, basically you had to have like a certain amount of Canadian content in the magazines. So the way to get around, like if you wanted to review a German exhibition, you can have a Canadian uh, critic write these things. So I was getting some nice gigs that way. But it was really helpful because... Uh, the woman I worked with at the time, uh, Rosemary Heather, who I continue to work with uh, as an editor, she's an incredible writer, incredible editor. So when you're young and, and writing and, and just kind of learning how to craft text well, she was an ideal person to to kind of be be schooled by, let's say, in the in the best way possible. <laughs> and now talking about your most recent work and and the the work that we want to focus on today, which is your work on the end of a world, the planetary. Can you give us an introduction of what, what the planetary even is and what you mean by it? Sure. I mean, I think, well, first of all, this end of, of a world, I think it's really important to emphasize the A um, and not the world. Um, this is like a thesis that is not, not just mine. It's like coming from various discourses. Um, in one of the essays that I wrote, uh, I was using it in the sense that was uh, from Federico Campagna and Denise Ferreira da Silva. Um, so it's an idea that is occupying the minds of several people. Um, but basically, if we tie that into the planetary, um, it's probably best to describe it as a distinction between the global and the planetary. And that's a question that is often asked, like, what is the difference? And I think one helpful way to frame it is, um, you know, we can look at somebody like the historian Deepesh Chakrabarti, who talks about it as the global is like understanding history as a strictly human affairs, right? Where we talk about wars and key frames and key dates and key actors, whereas the planetary is a different picture of history where humans cannot be separable from the earth system or the geological layer, so that's what we're contending with now. So when we talk about the end of a world, we're talking about the end of a picture of history where it's only about humans and what humans do. Um, because now we are recognizing, uh, at least from the Euro European westernized tradition, we are brutally recognizing that we are in fact never detached from those systems. Um, so how do we rethink history and our and our positions, uh, all those sorts of like cascading consequences of reattaching to this, let's say, not just geological strata, but also like atmospheric, um, bios biospheric, etc. Why is this happening now? Why are now so many people thinking about that? Because we're fucked in terms of the climate. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's like a legit answer, right? Um, I'm not being cute. When I say that, we're trying to imagine the types of transformations, social, uh, economic, ethical, uh, ecological transformations that have to happen that I think is becoming more and more apparent, right? We're not talking about minor adjustments of like, oh, don't run the water when you brush your teeth and everything's going to be fine. Like, yeah, okay, we're going to have to change our behaviors and that's not a bad thing, but that's certainly not to the scale or to the magnitude of sort of uh, transformations that have to happen to imagine how to inhabit that. And maybe that's also an um, interesting term to throw in the mix is the difference between the planetary and planetarity. So when we talk about the planetary, like I described it, it's more of like, let's say, uh, 
an epistemic recognition, right? Like we can know about something uh, and we can know about that through the sciences, through various means and planetarity, which is a term coming from Gyatri Spivak is something that I read as like more about the space of learning how to inhabit the consequences of that knowing. So that is practices, that is practical, that is like operational, but it isn't just knowing about the fact of something. Um, so that's, and that's where I'm currently most invested in, like what are the new practices of, of inhabitation that have to take place um, because of this knowledge? Like how do we make that knowledge consequential at the level of every day? If I understood this correctly, and, and also having read your text about these, um, when you criticize or when you try to get to a point of thinking about our planet in different ways and going away from this Euromodern global tale that we've, at least in Western society, have been telling ourselves for the last few centuries, you trace it back to several concepts that have been deeply rooted in society and in our thinking, concepts of uh, space, concept of time that are intrinsically linked to like a some, somewhat capitalist logic. So I, I think you're kind of deconstructing these concepts without yet proposing a different concept, right? It's more like understanding where, where this comes from and trying to deconstruct it and then seeing what else we can work with rather than proposing an alternative model already. Yeah, no, I think that's a really fair point. And I agree, like, at this point in time, I mean, uh, my work is lacking in the propositional, let's say, like, what to do out of it. Um, hopefully that is just getting towards that direction. Um, because I guess first is the important point of, like, identifying the problem space you want to work in. I suppose the, the reason why I was looking particularly at the spatial domain, again, I come from the arts, right? Like, and I even quite miss um, artistic production and have been sort of... Um, I guess, compelled by the correlation between the, the rise of philosophical humanism, let's say in the Renaissance, right, as a kind of philosophical movement. It's very abstract at the time, right? It's like uh, probably everyday people had no idea that, you know, like when you're separating from a godly sort of picture of, of human serves God and, and so on. And then you have the kind of uh, co-development of classical perspectivalism. So a way of naturalizing human vision as the kind of so-called correct way to represent reality. So the way that I'm taking in reality through my binocular vision is the correct way to represent reality. Um, and so for me, there's this kind of correlation between what you could think of as a knowledge regime or like an episteme, if you want to put it in a Foucauldian uh, sort of sense, and an esthetime. So like a way of representing that concept so that it like becomes graspable um, and people could like position themselves like <laughs> through a method, right? Because it was also not just about one singular author capturing what that spatialization would be, um, but it was a method that anyone could use to mimic human vision. So I was really interested in that co-development. And so if we're going to have to rethink human positionality within a planetary framework, then we also need to invent space, right? And that's also been a, a long-standing, um, you know, critical observation that you know modernity arrives with a certain invention of space. Um, obviously, later modernity like comes with a grid and all of these things, and that's been widely theorized. Um, it's definitely baked into a lot of our software, modeling software, for instance. So a lot of the legacies of that 
spatial uh, a priori, if you want, are like very much alive and well in our everyday. Um, and so the gamble I'm kind of trying to trying to invest in is to like say like what would be that new uh, spatial paradigm that allows us to situate ourselves um, at a planetary scale. I'm just thinking of um, I think in one of your essays you also wrote about how this specific view on perspective and uh, um, basically also of course um, was introduced to some of the technological programs we use like AutoCAD which is the main uh, application that architects use to construct houses and so on when we take that metaphor of you know technology and in that sense software taking over of course some of these concepts that have been established over centuries and and hundreds of years do you think there's a possibility that software or technology in some sense can help us reach a new understanding of the planetary or humans inside the planet because there might be a software that takes on a completely different perspective that might be taken from whatever flies or bees or fungi. Or, I don't know. Um, so do you think these tools could help us um, be an aid to humans to achieve uh, kind of like a paradigm shift or a different kind of view towards the planet? I mean, certainly it's it's possible, right? I mean, I think, you know, if you think about somebody like um, Benjamin Bratton, his sort of argument is like, it's through technology that we, <clears throat> that we even come to discover the planetary, right? So um, it's not that, uh, it, it's an, it, in itself what he would call like a technological achievement in a sense, right? Even though we know that we're fucked because of the technologies that uh, were required to come to that recognition. One of the spheres that seems really interesting to me is the gaming sphere where there has been a lot of experimentation. Like there was a, a very popular game, if I'm not mistaken, a few years ago called Everything. And it was literally about adopting, I think, any number of entities in the game space. So you could be like a piece of dirt, a bacteria, an elephant or whatever, and you could be constantly switching scales, which I think is like a really important um, concept that we have to work through um, or a problem that we have to work through. But I, I kind of am excited about the sort of intelligent use of gaming um, scenarios to, yeah, to help us sort of like nudge us out of this sort of, uh, uh, yeah, the <laughs> nudge us towards different perspectives. I mean, certainly it's not going to be some panacea that, oh, this is all we need is a good game and then we're, we're good to go. Um, but even with something like, and I haven't played the game, but... Um, very curiously, this like half earth socialism book that just came, right? There's a game that corresponds to it, which as far as I understand allows, you know, readers or I guess people that even haven't read the book to, um, you know, work with, uh, modeling scenarios and all these sorts of things. And so they can really start to build their own simulations or not just be shown simulations. But certainly I think these are really interesting vehicles to get us like, thinking about, you know, what are the possible activities we can do? Mm -hmm. I think you, you also mentioned in one of your, I think in this symposium you recently did in, in Switzerland, of how a different understanding and different philosophical concepts also change our sense of agency and responsibility. Do you have any other examples of maybe as a result from that symposium of how the rethinking of, of these concepts might result in individuals or even entire societies and communities thinking differently about their agency and responsibility towards the planet. You know, self-critically said, I think, 
it's pretty clear I'm tackling this a lot on the conceptual plane, um, which is frustrating for a lot of people, I realize. Um, but I kind of am committed to the like linkage between you know, concept generation and then practical manifestation. Um, I don't think I'm the most talented person to be doing that next work, but that is why you engage in collaborations, right? None of these problems are for a single person, none. Um, but in terms of agency, there's this quite beautiful concept about um, like transpersonal agency that I was working through when thinking about different ways to kind of just shift our our let's say common sense understanding that like agency is purely tied to this like personal will or that you need to, that you're making these autonomous decisions that are your personal ethical commitments. I mean, yes, we have that and it's not to evacuate that, but it's not to also overstate that, right? Um, and I think these are obviously legacies of a, of a liberalist paradigm that, you know, comes becomes neoliberalism, where all of our notions of freedom and agency are localized on the individual scale. That's a huge liability as well. And one, I guess, promising thing that I think we're seeing certainly in, in uh, you know, certainly in the U.S. at the moment is I think there's a generation, like a half generation below me that is like much better at organizing in terms of labor, um, and that was like not a part of my generational conversation, nor the boomer generation, let's say. What is organizing labor? In, in, well, I'm just thinking day? about like the, you know, these kind of incredible feats of, of labor organization of the Amazon tech workers, like Christian Smalls and like these kind of figures that are achieving gains because they're not thinking about agency at an individual scale, right? I mean, it's, it's the old political problem of solidarity, but like, how do you do that? How is it maybe different from historical cases of solidarity? How do you build international solidarities? How do you build solidarities for things that are not necessarily impacting you, right? There's a plenty of things that, um, plenty of networks we may be implicated in as individuals that we're not morally confirming. Um, so how do we stand in solidarity with those movements? It's going to be tricky, right? Because it's always this problem of like, you can't speak on behalf of somebody whose experience you don't know, but nonetheless, you need to stand in alliance somehow. And how do you do that accountably without taking away the space of agency of, of, of those people? Mm. I agree that I think also I observe large and wide this return to collectivism in a sense where people, and I think maybe it's also a post-pandemic thing where everyone was isolated, but also I think on a very theoretical level that people realize with the challenges that we have ahead, we need to work together and we need to act as collectives. And I find it interesting that you say that, yes, of course, the concept of solidarity has always existed and we've seen worker unions form and Marx wrote about it and so on. What is different today? What are the different nuances that, that we realize you know, might be different today? And I think there are different infrastructures that we can now use to organize better and organize ourselves. I think also connected maybe to your work, I'm sure you, you, you read it, the... The, the Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David Neng. I'm not Rowe. entirely through it yet, okay. though. I would admit. <laughs> Me neither. I admit. <laughs> but I, I, I find it quite interesting because I think what, what the book is about, we'll link it in the show notes, is a different sense of viewing human history, going away from this idea that 
you know, humans have always been individuals and we need kind of like society to impose some rules and so on versus a view that already pre-modern societies had a lot of collectivists um, um, formats and modes of caring for each other that, yeah, we now see that, uh, yeah, maybe we also have to go back to history to learn how to better work together towards uh, a more, uh, a better planet and survival essentially. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, obviously, the book is hugely important. I think there's a figure that that has been doing that prior, but not from the archaeological or specifically anthropological view. Is uh, Sylvia Winter, where she's, um, you know, she's in her well in her nineties right now. Um, she's talking about it from a cosmogony, so like the origins of, of of the human, for instance. And I think what's interesting about the dawn of everything is the way that they're they're unsettling the the narrative of necessity. Let's just say, right? So like we're told in a really, let's say, uh, elementary school type of way that, oh, as soon as, as soon as you have agriculture, you need to have property because X, Y, Z, right? So like we're, we're told that certain things necessitate certain modes of social organization. And I think what that book, and again, I haven't finished it totally. I did go to the conferences here in Berlin, which were wonderful. Um, but they're just kind of unsettling that narration of necessity that they're like, no, there was plenty of agricultural uh, societies that we have evidence that um, they had like seasonal modes, like sometimes very hierarchical societies, sometimes very not hierarchical societies, etc. Like just to kind of open up the play space, I guess, because I think that was also an, an important factor for a figure like Graeber, right? How do we open the conceptual play space that other possibilities are are, are available to us? Um, because so much of the recounting of, of our own cosmogonical like narrative as humans is like, oh, well, this happened. So of course we need property because that's just how it is. Graeber is a great example of how this philosophical, conceptual, under underlying framework that um, can also inspire direct action because he was one of the main thinkers of the 99% movement in New York in 2010 and so on. So I think that's a great example of like how these both kind of like work together, direct action and conceptualizing different perspectives. Yeah, I mean, he's obviously quite a special figure in that regard. I mean, most academics aren't, aren't like that. But, you know, even just to think about the, a lot of the ways that we justify capitalism, I'm not saying like you and I necessarily, but in the everyday, it's like, well, if you want innovation, if you want progress, if you want uh, new things, we have to have capitalism. And it's just like, so I think it's even interesting to think about, you know, based on what we can learn from something like the dawn of everything, of unsettling that narrative of necessity, um, like, is that true? You know, like, why do we keep repeating that type of narration, you know? Because um, certainly we will need uh, epistemic, technological innovations um, to tackle something like uh, climate catastrophe. Is capitalism really delivering the types of technologies that we need for that? And I think it's becoming pretty obvious today that the answer is no. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's, that's not necessarily true. That's my final question. What makes you hopeful that we can achieve some of these changes in the next 10 years? I want to prioritize these issues in the psyche of my students. Um, I want to see how they're grappling with them. But one of the challenges is like how to not make it so overwhelming that there's just a total withdrawal, um, which is understandable psychologically. Um, so how do you create points of access to these really um, enormous complex themes um, 
that start to, you know, as an aggregate of all these different practices, start to construct something like a, a new possibility space. The Culture and Technology Podcast is produced by the Vienna Business Agency. The Vienna Business Agency supports businesses, the economy, and the city to develop Vienna's creative industries further.